Hey, everybody. I'm John Small. And I'm Dan Bova. And from the Entrepreneur Media Podcast Network, this is Dirty Money. Investigators have called it one of the biggest corruption cases ever. You're one of the greatest con men of all time. You're the daddy of them all. But what does it take to be a good con man? I'm not guilty. You're the one who's guilty. Hey, Dan. Hey, John. It is good to be back with my favorite co-host. Oh, oh, I... My only co-host. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I picked up on that. You picked up... <laughs> so, uh, wow. Today, we're going to be talking about a guy who is considered the most hated man in the world. That is quite a distinctive honor, to be the most hated man in the world. That that is, and I'm wondering if it is the person. So, uh, so everybody knows, I'm I'm a little late to our recording because I was dealing with someone who. Um, you ever get work done at your house, John? Uh, quite a bit. You mean like have a handyman come over and do some stuff? Yeah, or do some stuff, and they yeah. they say it's going to cost this, but oh, we found that. Yeah, they always this. yes, they always upsell. Yeah. So uh, I uh, just had something. Uh, balloon exponentially in front of my eyes so uh i'm a little rattled oh man what was what were they fixing very exciting uh for anyone who owns a home i know this is very exciting it's not a boiler but a driveway if there's anything more exciting in the world than replacing a, a broken down driveway i don't know what it is because whoo what a roller coaster what, what a roller coaster man <laughs> yeah so the most hated man in the world is not your contractor for the for the driveway, although I'm sure that okay. right now you're feeling that way. We're talking about yeah. Martin Screlly, aka Pharma Bro. This oh guy my has God. this guy has a lot of nicknames. You and I are familiar with this guy because you know we've worked at Entrepreneur for a while, and his story like made headlines certainly when we were working a lot on the editorial yeah. side of things. He's pretty dirty. He definitely holds a <laughs> special place in the annals of dirty money stories. Not a great person, it turns out. Um, so yeah. I, <laughs> uh, and if you're listening, because, you know, you had asked me before you rolled tape it whether he's still in jail and he is he is now out of jail and we'll, we'll get into that. But um, he did spend some time in jail. I'll just give you a quick sketch. He was the former CEO of a company called Turing Pharmaceuticals. And in 2017, he was convicted of securities fraud and conspiracy to commit securities fraud. But mainly, Martin Screlly is remembered for raising the price of a drug called Daraprim from $13.50 a pill to $750 a pill. Tonight, the head of a drug company who's accused of gouging patients says he should be thanked. 32-year-old former hedge fund manager Martin Shkreli thought the drug Daraprim was underpriced. The medication is used to treat a disease that can be fatal to those with a suppressed immune system, such as cancer and HIV patients. Last year, fewer than 9,000 prescriptions were written for the pills. Shkreli's company, Turing Pharmaceuticals, bought Daraprim this year and immediately jacked the price up more than 5,000%. If there's a company that was selling a, an Aston Martin at the price of a bicycle, 
and we buy that company and uh, we, ch we ask to, to charge Toyota prices, I don't think that that should be a crime. There's no doubt I'm a capitalist. I'm trying to create a big drug company, a successful drug company, a profitable drug company. You see how greedy this move looks. Yeah, I could see how it looks greedy, but I think there's a lot of altruistic properties to it. Not only did he do this sort of overnight and kind of freak out many of the people who had to take this, this drug, but he defended it wholeheartedly and obnoxiously um, yes. for a long time. And we'll get into that. So he is remembered not only for doing something dirty, but then advocating for it and defending it and saying it's part of capitalism and everybody just shut up. Right. You know, I don't remember a lot of the details, so I'm I'm very curious to to hear the the deep dive that you're going to lead us through. But I have to say, I'm glad that he committed an actual crime so that he could at least go to jail. Yes, because I just remember all oh, that that face, his voice, his his attitude. Oh, you just wanted to strangle this dude. <laughs> he he really deserves the honor of being called the pharma bro. And I hoped when I kind of dug deeper into his story that there would be some redeeming qualities and I'd be like, you know what? He's really not that bad a guy. And sometimes we find this out when we when we dig a little deeper into some of our yeah. dirty money culprits, but I couldn't find a whole lot of redeeming qualities in this guy. <laughs> but, you know, he's smart, I think. Yeah. We're going to open up a little bit in the early years, the origin story of Mr. Martin Screlly. He is a Brooklyn native, but not sort of the hipster part of Brooklyn. He was born in a place on a, an apartment, a small apartment in Ocean Avenue in a part of Brooklyn that's very family oriented, kind of lower middle class. His parents were immigrants from Albania. They worked janitorial jobs and other odd jobs. You know, so he was definitely from modest means, not a not a right. kid born with a golden spoon in his mouth or a silver spoon in his mouth. And one thing that we do have in common, and I think you also have in common with him, is that he's a huge fan of hip hop, particularly huh. old school hip hop. He loves Eminem, he loves DMX, and he loves the Wu-Tang Clan. We'll get more into yes. that, where that love of yes. the Wu-Tang Clan goes. <laughs> yes. It's a sort of Wu-Tang clash. It was a, it's a big part of his life. It was a big part of his life, and it still is a big part of his life. So he did manage to sort of get out of this lower middle class that he grew up in. He was, because he's such a smart guy, he was admitted to a pretty elite public school in Manhattan called the Hunter College High School. And his former classmates said that he was, even though he's a good student, he always seemed to be more interested in playing chess and he played electric guitar in this band of his called the Coney Island Whitefish, which was named after a Joan Jett song. <laughs> wow. Did not know that one. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, he was he was a big guitar player. Are they on Spotify? <laughs> and um, you know, so in high school he had this great opportunity, but he kind of blew off a lot of it. He was considered to be an indifferent uh, high school student and Probably could have gotten straight A's, but ended up getting straight F's and was eventually kicked out his senior year uh, because his grades were not up to par. And even though he was a really poor performing student, he had a photographic memory. And the people who knew him and know him say that he, 
he had this incredible ability to like just memorize huge amounts of information. Like he could memorize basically a medical journal and a medical textbook and like have an encyclopedic knowledge of drugs and diseases. He had some big interest in drugs and diseases, which will which will carry over into his adult life in a very interesting way. Man, I, I got to say, just people with a photographic memory, if you have one, like, oh, oh cherish it. <laughs> I can't remember shit. When I had to study for school, I was like, I had to go over the things like a million times. So, uh I know the photographic memory thing, I feel like is a, is a, like, it's a secret ingredient of a lot of people we call geniuses because a lot yeah. of the, you know, they're just able to remember everything. And I can't remember anything. Like you're saying, I can't even remember what I just said five seconds ago. <laughs> I just, I don't well, have I can, that John, kind of Because it was riveting. It was yeah, riveting. And thankfully we're recording it. <laughs> but yeah, so this guy has a photographic memory. So we already know he's got that kind of thing going for him. But he just didn't see the value in school. He felt that being good at school was being a conformist. So he just stopped going to classes and he got kicked out. Mm. But he was able to receive the credits he needed for his high school degree through a program that he ended up going into. And that program also placed him in an internship on Wall Street with a Wall Street hedge fund called Kramer, Berkowitz and Company. So that's what's wet his appetite for finance and where he started to learn mm. a little bit about the wheelings and dealings of hedge funds. He went to Baruch College and of course immediately became a hedge fund manager after that. And um, he started to follow in the footsteps of some of the people that he admired. And in his very early 20s, he did what you and I did, Dan. He started a hedge fund. Yeah. It's what we, it's yep. what we should have done. Which, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, he started a hedge fund. It was called Elia Capital. You know, this was pretty impressive to be that young and to start your own hedge fund. And he, and he quickly made a lot of money, but he also quickly lost a lot of money. He made a $2.6 million bet that the stock market would decline. He did that in 2007. He was about a year late, a year, I'm sorry. He was about a year early to that decision mm -hmm. and uh, it didn't decline and he lost a tremendous amount of money for him and his uh, hedge fund pals. Wow. So it was the, the big short, but he, he, he rushed it and uh, he wasn't like Christian Bale, like just hanging out in, on the floor of his uh, office, just waiting, waiting, waiting. No, that time would come. Mm. So after the failure of Aaliyah Capital, he starts another hedge fund called MSMB Capital Management. And that fund was very successful. And he quickly became a multimillionaire basically overnight. And so now he's wow. in his kind of late 20s and he's just, he's living that, that, yeah, like you said, that Christian Bale, Michael Douglas before that life uh, of, right. of the Wall Street greed is good type of lifestyle. Right. But, you know, like a lot of these types of people, he was never really happy with just being rich. He wanted more than money. He wanted affirmation. He wanted attention. That's that's what his friends say. He was always telling people how rich he was and wanted them to acknowledge how rich he was. So it wasn't really always about the money. And it's so interesting with these guys. Sometimes it's really not just about making money. It's about what yeah. that brings them, you know? So I, you use the word friends and what we come to know about him. I, I'm just wondering on this journey, like 
does a guy like this have like actual friends or does he have people that think like, whoa, this dude, he's, he's a jackass, but he's fucking smart. And I'm going to get rich if I just like sit close to him long enough. Now, I don't know him personally and I don't want to make judgment. Maybe he's got some good old friends and, but I don't get the impression that he was the kind of guy that engendered a lot of compassion and friendship. Yeah, <laughs> right. We'll find out later that he spent a lot of time by himself on social media, certainly wasn't hanging out with his buddies. And a lot of his buddies would end up suing him or pressuring him to give them money. Mm. So uh, he doesn't seem like that's another ingredient of uh, ingredient of somebody who's quite greedy is they don't tend to have a lot of friends around. Right. So in 2011, he he's running this hedge fund and he decides to start this company called Retrofin, which is kind of a, a pharmaceutical company that would buy old sort of neglected drugs that were usually used for rare diseases. And then they would raise their prices. This is how this company made money. It seems pretty sleazy, but anyway, it's it's done. It's not the that's not the only company that does this. Companies will do this. They will buy old IP of drugs and then raise the price. Retrofin, for example, raised the price of a drug that was called Thiola that was used to treat a disease that caused kidney stones. And they raised the price from $1.50 a pill to $30 a pill. So this is kind of where he starts learning this practice of of jacking up the prices of drugs. And he, his, John, own, yeah. John, can I interrupt for a second? Please do. Because you, you're just, you're just touching on so many nerves for me. <laughs> Kidney stones. I've had them. Me it's too. It's the worst. Anyone getting in the way of helping someone get through that. It, like he's done for me. I'm, I'm out That's on it. him already. He had me, yeah. Please. He had, he had you at kidney stones. I know I get them too. Yeah. They are. In fact, I used to have them when we hung out together in New York City, I, I remember going to the work one day at our office at Stuff Magazine and getting a kidney stone and having to be like, excuse me, I, I've, I've got to go. Like they say it's like <laughs> the most painful thing, like next to like childbirth. It's like one of the most painful it, things. It's horrible. It, it's horrible. It's horrible. So anyway, we don't like that. The thing about Shkreli and a lot, what a lot of these people argue is that they say that they raise the prices not just because they want to make a profit, because but because it gives the company enough money to then educate doctors about the diseases and then create better treatments than the pills mm. that they're selling. So they say they're really doing it for the good of everyone. Here's our friend Martin explaining his position in an interview. Were you not expecting the world to just go crazy on you that you increased a pill from eight? What, it was eighteen dollars. It was eighteen dollars, and you took it to seven hundred and fifty dollars. Okay. What was behind that move? Well, I think that when you're in the pharmaceutical industry, you have to be a part of an ecosystem. And that ecosystem includes patients, includes payers, insurers, includes employers, includes research and pharmaceutical companies. And for us, it made a lot of sense because this is a drug that not, not many drug companies wanted to own. It was passed around by, by many different companies. And most companies didn't want to really own it and make it faithfully. So it's in danger of being uh, put out of business. It's such a small product. It was one of the smallest products in the drug business. So now it's a little bit of a bigger product, but it's still really tiny compared to Blockbuster drugs like Viagra or Lipitor. So this product is uh, now affordable to make. We can make it and turn a profit, and we can take some of that profit and put it back into research for this disease. So to me, that's the ecosystem uh, working really well. Okay, I get it. I, I'm, I buy it, Martin. Yeah, uh, now, I'm now, I'm on, now I'm on Team Screlly. <laughs> but, you know, like many things you will find in Martin Screlly's life, he can't really hold on to a job for too long. And his stint at Retrofin didn't go well. The board replaced him as CEO and he moved on. But Retrofin 
I bring this up because they are going to come back to haunt him. Remember that name, oh. Retrofin. So, okay. so Screlly is on his own now, playing around in his hedge funds. He's still a multimillionaire. And he decides to start this new company called Touring Pharmaceuticals, the notorious Touring Pharmaceuticals. And because of his incredible contacts in the industry, he's able to raise $90 million in his first round of financing. That's pretty good. Ninety wow. million. I've gone out and tried to raise finance. I think I raised about fifteen hundred dollars. <laughs> so he's got ninety million. That's it. Just helps to have friends, I guess. In, yeah. In the hedge fund world, man. God, I gotta say, speaking of ghosts, it's like touring ph pharmaceuticals. You're bringing up all these words that I remember from years ago, and like my brain try to just like you know, uh, you know let it leak out of my ear so i never think about that again but <laughs> but here we are john dredging up terrible memories uh, so that's go ahead what we do that's what we do best at dirty money <laughs> just when you think you've forgotten it we bring it back to haunt you yeah so he's now he's got this job at turing he's started this company turing and he's learned all these kind of tricks from retrofin and all these other places he worked about jacking up the prices um, so one of the first things he does when he starts that company is he pays 55 million dollars for the American for the American marketing rights of this drug called Daraprim. And this was like a 62-year-old drug for something that is a pretty rare disorder. It's called toxoplasmosis. And it's basically a, a parasitic infection that if you get it, it can be very deadly for babies, for people with AIDS particularly. And this is where he made his fateful decision to raise the price of that drug, which people really, really did need from Thirteen fifty a pill to seven hundred and fifty dollars per pill. Oh, so, at this point, oh. the price increase, as you can imagine, was not welcome news. It brought the course of treatment for some people to hundreds of thousands of dollars that were paying, you know, maybe tens of thousands of dollars, if that, just to treat this disease. It's interesting to know, like, the reason he could do this because you might say, like, how can somebody just do this? Yeah. It turns out the U.S., unlike a lot of other countries, doesn't have regulations on price controls. Now, some free market advocates might say that's as it should be. Let the market determine the price, right? The government shouldn't be involved. But this is kind of a result of that fact that we just have no policies. The U.S. government still has no drug price uh, policies and, and restrictions. So you can do this. And so he did it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. You know, this is I'm making this all about me, John, but, uh, you know, one, one of my sons has a nut allergy. So, uh, you know, we went through a, a huge price jack up with EpiPens oh, and, man. uh, you know, they were expensive to begin with and then they became really expensive. And the thing about drugs like this is like, nobody's taking it for fun. Nobody yeah. wants to be on it. Right. No one, it's not like making me more beautiful or something. It's like saving your life. And how can this cost $750 a pill? That's, oh, it's disgusting. Yep. It was pretty disgusting. And because he's kind of like always wanted to be in the news and was high profile, the fact that he did this became news. It became a news item and he didn't sort of do it secretly. And it was a complete PR disaster. They say all good PR is good PR. I don't know if this was such great PR, although it certainly made him famous overnight. Yeah. He got this infamous name, the Farmer Bro, because the Vanity yes. Fair did an article 
on him, uh, a writer by the name of Bethany McLean, and she called him the Pharma Bro. And that name stuck. It became sort of synonymous with anybody, any kind of pharmaceutical executive who, who will exploit patients or or really anyone who's engaged in any kind of unethical business practice becomes a pharma bro. So it became like a meme. Uh, and um, Bethany. Uh, yeah, Bethany. Big up to Bethany. We all know how hard it is to come up with these terms. That- perfect, perfect, perfect name. So, I mean, you, you kind of hinted at this, but... Did he, I can't remember, did he, he embraced, he embraced being a pharma bro, if I, if I remember correctly. I mean, in some ways, I think he liked the attention, but he didn't love the negative attention. And oh, okay. he's, you know, he's, he's a guy that likes to punch back. Okay. And so, you know, he didn't really take it all in stride. I think he immediately made the media, the enemy. Mm-hmm. He sent out a bunch of hostile tweets. He's very active in social media. He was particularly mad that the media was singling him out out of all the other farmer bros that were doing this. And he said something mm-hmm. like, I think he tweeted it. It seems like the media immediately points a finger at me. So I point one back at them, but not the index or the pinky, mm-hmm. which is a quote from an Eminem rap. Eminem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, he, wow. he invoked one of his uh, heroes from his childhood. And right. okay. he famously, and this is where, you know, you brought up the thing about friends. And I just wondered about this because his way of sort of dealing with this is that he would do these hours and hours long YouTube live streams where he would just have the camera rolling in his apartment while he would just do things like strum a guitar or comb his hair um, or start, you know, playing chess. And it was kind of like YouTube became his friend or I guess whoever was on the other end of that camera became his friend. It's sort of a kind of a sad you know, when you're depressed and you just decide that you're just going to yeah. live stream your depression and be defiant. And at one Jeez. point during the live stream, this a high schooler from his his former alma mater, that, that elite school we were talking about, Hunter High School, called him. She just started saying, you know, I'm a big fan of yours and everything. And it was a little creepy. I mean, he did. I've watched the tape and he definitely said, like, I don't want to get in trouble for like talking to a high school student. So it wasn't totally creepy, but it was still a little weird. I think uh, the media would have a problem with me being friends with a uh, bunch of high school kids. Yeah, that might be a little bit of an issue. Where are you going to go to college? Well, I would um, give you a reference letter if it would help, but it may not help. You should totally do that. If you want to go to Columbia, I can get you into Columbia, but other than that... Any connection that Yale or Harvard you can get me? Probably, but uh, not as strong as Columbia. Um, friends live? My friends? I don't have any friends. Like, one of my good friends is in Rikers right now. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, he's um, in for attempted murder and drug trafficking. Like are, there, are there any black kids at Hunter anymore? There's like five when I went there. But he kind of like, you know, couldn't help himself. And as soon as he kind of had the attention of this girl, he started talking about things like he's going to, you know, use his money to bail out this rapper named Bobby Schmurda, who who has the best name, Schmurda. <laughs> um, and he was the, Bobby Schmurda was in jail at the time and he was going to bail him out. And then he started talking about how he was going to you know, he was planning to dominate the rap industry and become an industry mogul like Russell Simmons, P. Diddy, Pharma Bro. <laughs> you know, he even compared himself to Bill Gates. He said that, you know, Bill Gates was once the most hated man- person in the world and look what happened to him. So right, right, it just right. all kind of came out. 
the uh, the mania a bit. Yeah, I, I guess that's my memory of him as more of a, you know, like a WWE villain, you know, just like embracing all the booze and stuff. But did he so he he defend did he use the same uh, the same excuse for raising the prices of this drug where it's this money is going to help? Totally. That's his line. It's going to raise enough revenue to develop new medicines. I have two questions for you. The first is, if you could rewind the clock a few months, I wonder if you would do anything differently. And the second is, I'd like to know if you think corporate reputation matters. I probably would have raised the price higher, is, is probably what I would have done. Um, um, Why? I, I think healthcare prices are inelastic. I could have raised it higher and made more profits for our shareholders, um, which is my primary duty. And again, no one wants to say it. No one's proud of it. But uh, you know, this is a, a capitalist society, capitalist system, and capitalist rules. And my investors expect me to maximize profits, not to minimize them or go half or go seventy percent, but to go to one hundred percent of the profit. And curve. so then, the, the, what, uh, what his critics would shoot back was, "Well, if that's true, why don't you use the money that you raise from from the investors for your company to pay for for those? Uh, you know, not not put the burden on the." Uh, on the person buying the drugs, which is a good argument, I guess. So yeah. that was kind of always the argument. Like, okay, if that's really true, then why are you charging the people who have the least amount of money to afford it? Amazingly, at one point, I guess the pressure was just too great on him. He eventually caves and agrees to lower the prices, but he actually huh. doesn't. I don't remember that. <laughs> oh, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> that's why, because he didn't actually really lower the list price. It was always $700. He said that Turing would offer discounts of up to 50% at certain hospitals. But anyway, he didn't actually lower the list price of the drug. So it wasn't really what he was saying he was going to do, but I guess it got some of the heat off of him. But I should say that during this time, I think another thing that he's super famous for and that a lot of people remember is that he would use he would use this insane amounts of money to buy all this memorabilia, like random memorabilia. Mm. Like he bought yes. a credit card that Kurt Cobain from Nirvana once owned. I think he spent like millions of dollars for that. And most notoriously, and this was just featured in a TNT special. This is how big a deal this was. He bought a rare edition of Wu-Tang's Once Upon a Time in Shaolin for $2 million. So he bought a vinyl record for $2 million. Yeah. Now I remember this a little bit about this. So this was this album or a record that Wu-Tang made. They said there was going to be one, one copy, right? No one else in the world would be able to hear it unless you played it for them. And, uh, I think it came with a note that said the it's, you know, if you buy it, it's yours, but one of the Wu-Tang Clan members might come in the middle of the night and steal it from you. <laughs> and that that was part of the contract. But otherwise, it was yours. <laughs> as far as I know, they never stole it. Like even when the police raided his house later, they actually left the record there, apparently, because everybody was wondering what happened to the record. He bought this record. And of course, when everything went down, he became the farmer bro. RZA from the Wu-Tang was like completely distanced himself from this situation and said like, we made this sale long before, you know, right. he bought or he started touring pharmaceuticals and had basically said like, we want nothing to do with this guy. And you would think Screlly, you know, 
he was he was pissed. He was pissed at Riza, one of his idols. He said, you know, he he said he felt insulted. Told, yeah. He told, he told Hip Hop DX magazine that, you know, if you hand two million dollars to someone, fucking show me some respect. At least have the decency to say nothing or no comment. So he was he was mad yeah. that Riza and the Wu Tang spoke out for him. I mean, can you imagine you're such a fan of someone that you paid $2 million no. for this record and then they go and say, we don't know this guy. He's, we don't want anything to do with him. That's, uh, I mean, I can't imagine paying, tough. listen, I'm a record collector. I have, if you, you can see here in the studio, if you're watching this on YouTube, yeah. I've got a bunch of, you know, I've been listening and playing vinyl since I was in middle school. And I wouldn't pay $2 million for any record, even if I was the <laughs> richest man in the world. I don't know. Anyway, so uh, uh, yeah. I just question that judgment. I guess it's a, yeah. who knows. But John, I wanted to ask you. So we, we're talking about this guy. He's obviously, let's, let's give him, uh, we'll say he's got a questionable principles about, you know, society and helping people or yeah. not helping people and Being all very this. generous. Yeah, I'm being generous. So he's a jerk, or you could say he's an asshole. He's the farmer bro, but none of this is illegal. No, he's he's playing the game. He's being a capitalist. He's taking advantage of of a non regulated market, and he's and he's making money as or so it seems. Yeah. So you know, you said uh, at the top you talked about him being in jail. So so when does he start getting in trouble with the law? He is kind of riding around doing his social media thing. And then boom, one morning, 6 a.m., FBI agents show up at his apartment in Murray Hill and they arraign him in a federal district court. In Brooklyn, federal officials are holding a press conference at this hour after arresting Martin Shkreli. He's the pharmaceutical company CEO who achieved a lot of notoriety for hiking the price of a life-saving antiviral drug 5,000%. On Now he's being charged with unrelated allegations of securities fraud. CNBC's Dominic Chu joins me now. He's 32 years old at this time, and he was arrested on charges of securities fraud. He was accused of defrauding investors in the two hedge funds that we talked about earlier that he had founded, that MSBC and the Elia hedge funds. And that was what, what they arrested him for. So do you think, I wonder if for a minute... He thought, oh, this is the Wu-Tang Clan in disguise. They're stealing back that record. <laughs> it's true. That could have been either that or he's like, they finally got me on jacking up the prices of these. Uh, of these yeah. Well, was that? No. Was, was, it had nothing to do with why he was arrested. He, it had nothing to do okay. with And I think that people conflate those two things because, you know, he's so famous for that one, what seemingly seemed like a crime. So it, it ends up that really what he was doing, and boy, if we heard this, story again and again on Dirty Money. He was basically running a quasi Ponzi scheme in which he was once again, Mr. Ponzi, Joseph Ponzi. Yeah. Uh, For any new listeners, uh, go back in the archives and listen to uh, John explain the original Ponzi. But but in the case of of, uh, Mr. Screlly, so remember this company Retrofin, that was the first sort of pharmaceutical company that he headed. He would use the money that Retrofin was making to pay off all the money losing investors from his hedge fund. So 
While everybody thought these hedge funds that he had run were super successful, at least the second one, turns out they were actually losing quite a bit of money. And a lot of investors were out of a lot of money. So they were asking Mr. Screlly for money. So he was basically taking money from one company and giving it to investors of his hedge funds. And that is not legal. And uh, the FBI called it a trifecta of lies, deceit, and greed. Wow. You can't loot Retrofin to pay back disgruntled investors of your hedge fund. It's just not a legal thing to do. Wow. Li lies, deceit, and greed. I think we've got a new tagline. Thanks, FBI. <laughs> so, um, you know, he's got to hire lawyers. He's in big trouble. One of my favorite lines or jokes was, do you know Andy Barowitz from The New Yorker who does kind of like onion-like headlines? Yes. He he wrote something about how Mr. Screlly's lawyers had informed their client their hourly legal fees had increased by 5,000%. So uh, <laughs> I love that. So the, uh, yeah. yeah, they raised the, they raised the legal fees because they needed money for research and to, uh, right, 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 to, right, right. to make the legal profession a better profession. So anyway, so he, so he's in big trouble. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think we uh, tipped off how this trial goes, but it doesn't go well. I mean, yeah. it's not like okay. a, it's not a, you know, a, one of these things where he gets up in the middle of the trial and starts screaming. I mean, things come out like at one point, the prosecution showed this letter uh, that he written to his lawyer. And it basically said, and I quote, why can't you do your job? It is incredible. You are inept. You are done. <laughs> That's like the kind of, those are the <laughs> kinds of emails and letters that he sent. Wow. Us. And, you know, and then basically there was like all these people would come to the stand, people that he owed money to from the hedge funds. And then at one point, somebody asked him how much money he made off of the hedge fund. He couldn't remember if it was $40,000 or $370,000. So we're talking about people that were so rich that they couldn't even keep track of how much money they were making at any given time. So wow. nobody was particularly sympathetic in this trial. But the point is, yeah. that he didn't, he, he lost the trial. He was convicted of securities fraud, and he was sentenced to seven years in prison. That's a pretty big term. Wow. Yeah. God, I, I don't, I, 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 th this part of it. I know. Uh, I really, really forgot about all yeah, this. He yeah, he kind of disappeared. Right. And the reason he disappeared is because he was in a federal prison in Pennsylvania for a bunch of time. But before he even got to that prison, this, this kind of was amazing to me. So while he's awaiting his sentencing and he's, he's out on a huge amount of bail, he decides to spend that extra time going on Facebook and offering $5,000 to anyone who could grab a strand of Hillary Clinton's hair because that's what he wanted. He, she was on her book tour and he would say he would give $5,000 if you could send him a strand of her hair. And uh, <laughs> the judge found out about this and did not like it one bit. Yeah. Said it's it sounded awfully violent. And his lawyer argued that it was just basically stupid. He said, stupid doesn't make you violent. But the judge disagreed. And he uh, basically immediately put Mr. Screlly into his prison. Um, wow. I know. So he couldn't keep his mouth shut even when he was, um, even when he was convicted and just couldn't, huh. just needed that attention. That, hey, John, that sounds like someone else we know, but we won't get into all that. Nope. We will not get into that. Um, <laughs> all right. So it's, uh, so he's serving, he didn't, you know, all these guys, they never serve their full sentence. I guess he had good behavior, right? So he's in this prison, gets out on May 21st after five years 
in prison. So still a pretty good chunk of his life in prison. And he then goes back to Brooklyn, but this time in a halfway house where he has to live. Wow. From the penthouse to the halfway house. Right. Right in the middle of the pandemic, too. Like, yeah, sweet. Yeah, real pleasant. All right. So he goes into the halfway house. Like, has he learned his lessons? Like, what's he doing now? Is he uh, doing volunteer work for orphans? What's he up to? Yeah, exactly. He's completely turned his life around. No. He actually, so 2022 rolls around. He's, He's free and he gets convicted again. He goes to court. And this time he's convicted. This is in a civil suit. He has to pay $64.6 million. And this time it's because he raised the price of Daraprim and he was accused of engaging in anti-competitive behavior. And not only does he have to pay this money, exorbitant amount of money, but he's also barred from life for ever doing any business in the drug industry again. So it does come back to haunt him, the Daraprim decision, not only him, but the company, Turing, uh, which changed its name to a company called Viera, just a few days ago filed for bankruptcy. So the company he started went bankrupt. He owes $64.6 million for raising the price of Darapin, and he is now barred from life. He is now barred for life from the drug industry, he can never work in the drug industry again. You think he'd wow. learned his lesson? Yeah, I thought so. I was pulling for old Marty. (laughs) Damn. (laughs) But there's more. Oh, come on. Yeah. So now, as we record this, I I typed in, where is Martin Screlly now? Because, I mean, we haven't heard from the guy in a while. Yeah. And, you know, there's some, you know, so he's kind of turned back to his hip hop roots. He's he's trying to start up a collaboration with a hip hop artist named Moneybag Yo, who is a real, Mm -hmm. I actually just heard a Moneybag Yo uh, track this morning on my Sirius XM station. I don't know where that relationship is at. He's got a YouTube channel. He's been focusing on cryptocurrency. Always a winning, uh, a winning. There's decision. a, there's the most shocking thing you've said uh, this entire episode. Somehow I wouldn't have seen him in a, in a, yeah. <laughs> in an industry like cryptocurrency. So anyway, the thing that is has got him in the news lately, and this is amazing. He co-founded a new company which is called Drug Like which I guess isn't okay. actual drugs because he's not allowed to be in the drug industry. So yeah. it's called drug-like, which almost seems like a, a, a stick my middle finger out at the man. Um, yeah. And it's a company. I don't totally understand what it means. So I just, I'll read what it said in the, on the bio of the company. It provides broader access to computing programs for, for designing potentially therapeutic molecules. Uh, the company describes itself as a Web3 drug discovery mm. software platform. Don't understand exactly what that means, but I guess it's some sort of software that helps you design drugs. And it emphatically says in the website, we are not a pharmaceutical company. Now, you can say it, (laughs) but does that make it true? So the FTC, the the Federal Trade Commission, is actually not so sure. They've investigated this uh, company. And earlier this year, they asked a federal judge in New York to hold Screlly in contempt because he has failed to hand over documents and sit for an interview as part of their investigation into this company because they are not sure whether or not Screlly's involvement violates his lifetime industry ban. So the FTC is investigating this company, which he says is not a pharmaceutical company, and um, to be continued. 
That's where we are now. So Screlly, wow. once again, under the microscope, can't seem to stay out of trouble. <laughs> oh, for, for better or for worse, and definitely for worse, he, he is not out of our lives. I, I love that not a pharmaceutical company. I know. I'm going to try that. If, if I yeah. ever get caught in the middle of a murder, I'm just going to put a post-it on the body. Is it not a murder? Like, oh, oh, it, it says it right there. Right there. It says it right there. <laughs> oh my goodness. Wow. So that well, is that's where we are. And I'm sure this this, you know, this guy's only he's, he's in his mid thirties. So there there's probably still a lot to go. He might be one of our few dirty money two time champions. Um yeah. who knows? maybe he'll maybe he'll turn around. I mean, if he's listening to this, we're rooting for you, Martin. You can still turn around, <laughs> do it legit. Do it legit. You can you can make money the old fashioned way. Yeah. Oh, um, unbelievable for us. So that is, that is the story of the farmer, bro. Love him or hate him. Um, he definitely did his time. He definitely, he has apologized. Oh, for raising the prices. So I'm rooting for him. Uh, and I know we, we joke, but I just hope that this guy can, you know, obviously he's a smart dude. He likes the same music I like. Hey, maybe he can produce a few great albums. Yeah. John, it's, I was going to say, it sounds like you're angling for a record deal. <laughs> I am. <laughs> Martin, Martin, Kid Finesse, uh, my, yeah. my alias Kid Finesse is uh, waiting for your call. I've got a few <laughs> tracks that you might be interested in hearing, and uh, I'm, I'm looking for a good producer. I'm looking for a good you, executive. You know what? If that if that works out, I will gladly pay two million dollars for that album, John. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. My biggest fan. My biggest fan. Well, that concludes another hopefully informative uh, episode yeah. of dirty money go take a long shower hug hug your family and and take a pill that didn't cost 750 dollars. whichever one you find just grab a pill and take it i'm sure it'll work out as always if you like this podcast do us a solid and like it and give us five stars wherever you may listen to podcasts maybe even write a review i don't know and Please let us know if there are any stories of, of dirty money that you would like us to tell. Man, we would love suggestions from our listeners. Absolutely. And so I went to a priest, John, and he told me that uh, a five-star rating would uh, absolve you of any uh, dirty doings in your past. So this is an amazing opportunity we're giving you. What an incredible gift that we are giving our listeners here. Yeah, yeah. So. What happens if you're Jewish? Do you, does it still work? Well, <laughs> five Jewish stars. You have to give five Jewish stars. Yeah. yeah. All right. All right. Absolutely. Agnes. Dan, I'll see you later. 